CR101radio.com, podcasts, and more. Continuing walking through 1 John, we're in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 is our sermon text this evening. First John chapter 3, 4 through 10, the sermon is called The Spiritual Absurdity of False Converts. So First John 3, verses 4 through 10, this is God's word. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this text of scripture that lays out for us really plainly, very clearly, the issue of what it looks like to be born again. And I pray that for those in here who are truly born again, that they would be assured of their salvation. And I pray for those who hear this that are not born again, that they would know that they are not born again and call upon you and you would save them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We know from experience in the natural world that there are some things that just don't mix. Some things don't go together. One of the most classic examples of that is oil and water, right? We all we'll say that as an analogy. Oil and water just don't mix. Even when you mix them up together, shake them up together, after a minute they separate out again. They, just, they don't mix together. And the same thing is true with spiritual things as well. There are spiritual things that just don't mix, like oil and water don't mix. And in this text, these are this. Being born again on the one hand and living an unrighteous life on the other don't mix together. They cannot mix. Just like oil and water, being born again and living in unrighteousness cannot mix. It's impossible, in fact. Here in this section of 1 John, John's really returning to one of the main themes of the book, which he'll lay out near the end of the book in 1 John 5.13 where he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the points of the book, the main themes, is to know whether or not you really are saved. Whether you're somebody who's truly born again, not just one who professes Christ, but one who actually possesses Christ. So the question is, as usual, is how can I know if I'm a true Christian? And the, the test that's given here in this section of 1 John is really straightforward. It's something that John has already addressed in the book. It's that no, no true Christian lives or continues to live in the lifestyle 
of sin. When God makes somebody born again, he always changes that person and produces righteous fruit in them. They will no longer live in the habitual lifestyle of sin. And that's the thing, that's the main point of these verses we just read, 4 through 10, that John zealously argues for in the passage. So let's go ahead and start walking through it, and you'll see this. It's, it's very clear uh, how John lays this out. So let's start out here in verse 4 and, and see how he begins it. He says in verse 4, 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So although it's unpopular today, uh, John is not afraid to preach on the issue of the seriousness of sin. And it really is a shame that it is unpopular today to preach on the seriousness of sin, because understanding sin is essential to understanding the Christian faith. In fact, if you don't understand sin, you don't understand what salvation is all about. And in fact, if you don't understand sin, you're not going to understand this this issue of whether or not you're saved, whether or not you're born again. Because understanding sin is vital to understand whether or not you're actually saved. And that's what this passage is going to show. To understand what a lifestyle of sin is and what a lifestyle of righteousness is. So let's think about sin for a minute. Sin, as it's laid out here and throughout the entire Bible, is a huge deal. Okay, sin is a huge deal. Uh, The word sin basically just means transgressing or breaking God's law. Okay, and John uses this phrase here, one who practices sin. And what that means is that somebody who's living the lifestyle of sin, that is what characterizes their life. Now, what John emphasizes here, though, about sin is that he, he has this thing that almost sounds redundant to our ears, but he wants to emphasize this. Everyone who practices sin also practices a lawlessness. So, so what is he saying here? What's he trying to emphasize? That practicing sin is not simply making mistakes, and it's not little missteps. What he's saying is that sin is lawlessness. That is, it's a disregard for God and his law. Okay? The, word, the word there for lawlessness in Greek is anomia. Ah, meaning without, nomia, meaning law. That is, this person lives without the law of God. That is what it means to be in lawless living. They're practicing lawlessness. You're living without the law of God as the rule for your life. You're living in in sin and defiance against the law of God. You're living with disregard to the king of the universe's commands for you. That's what practicing sin is. It's practicing lawlessness, disdain for God. Uh, John Calvin rightly said concerning sin, he says, sin arises from contempt of God. And that's what lawlessness is. It's not just a little mistake. It's I disregard and reject what God has said. But the thing about that is that disregarding God, living lawlessly, lawlessly uh, it just, you can't do it. You, you, cannot, you, cannot, um, you cannot be outside the bounds of God. You are always under the law of God, even if you act like you're outside of it. Because everybody is accountable to God. That's, for example, sin, as Psalm 2 illustrates, people try to attempt to be outside of God's law, but, they, but God just laughs at them. In Psalm 2, 2 to 4, it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers of the earth take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, or against his Messiah. The saying, the rulers of the earth reject God in Jesus, And then they say this, let us tear their fetters or their shackles apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they're saying, 
about God the Father and about Jesus. Let's take off the shackles. Let's take off the ropes and live the way we want to outside of God's authority. Let's live lawlessly, in other words. And it says God's response is just this. He who who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. When they say, let's cast off God's restraints, he says, you can't do that. You're all accountable to me. Everybody is accountable to me. Everybody will give an account for every thought and word and action that they do. That's taught in scripture. Proverbs 6, 16, 2 talks about this. It says, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. See, God even looks at your intentions, your motivations for what you do, and will weigh that and will judge that. Your intentions, your thoughts, your motivations. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that every careless word that, that people speak, they will, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. God will judge based on every careless word that you've spoken in your life. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Every thought, every motivation, every word, every action, God holds all people accountable. When they live as if God's law doesn't hold them accountable, it still does, though. He, he holds everybody under his law. And what John is saying here is that God's going to judge sin for what it is. Violation of his law, lawlessness, not as anything else, not as a little mistake, but just as rebellion, as what it is, casting off the restraints of God. And no excuse making uh, will turn sin into something that it isn't. God holds everyone accountable, and it's just nothing less than lawless disregard for God. So sin, what he's saying here is that sin, you can't make light of sin. Uh, John Calvin, again, he wrote this. He says, it's probable that there were then, here in 1 John, there were then those who tried to make their sins seem less serious by this kind of flattery. People would tell themselves, well, it's no wonder if we sin. You know, we're men. But there's a great difference between sin and iniquity. See, people downplaying their sin to try to make it sound like it's no big deal. It's just a little, little mistake. So the prob- it's probable here that what John's saying is that sin is lawlessness. What he's trying to do is do away with any sort of um, self-flattery, trying to say, well, sin is not a huge deal. Um, he's saying, no, it is a huge deal. It's, it's active disdain and rebellion against God. You cannot lighten sin. Sin is lawlessness. So he's just, he's just cutting to the heart of the issue of sin. Living in sin is living with disregard for God's law and contempt of God. And he says practicing sin is no different than practicing lawlessness. They're the same thing. Sin is lawlessness. So if you're living in sin, you're living with disdain for God, contempt for God and his authority over you. So why is he saying this? He's bringing this up, boom, right there about sin. He's saying those who practice sin, those who live in it, no matter what they call it, what they say about it, they're living defiantly against God. They're living with disregard to God's law lawlessly. So he's saying if your lifestyle is characterized by the violating of the commandments of God, then you're living in nothing else than rebellion against him. And then if you're in rebellion against God, then certainly you don't know God, is his point. If you're living in sin, you're living in rebellion, and you're not a friend of God. You're not reconciled to him at that point while you're living that habitual lifestyle of sin. So he's saying a lifestyle of sin is a disdain for God, and no one whose life is characterized 
by disdain for God is saved. That's why he already said in 1 John 2, 3, he says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And we, if we live disregarding the law of God, he's saying we don't know him. And that's the point that John's bringing up here again and why he's bringing up the issue of sin here in verse 4. And it's really the main point of the rest of this passage, 4 through 10. So let's, let's continue on and see where he goes with this as he builds on this. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. This is our second point about Jesus's, uh, the, per, the two purposes of Jesus' coming that, uh, G, that John lays out here. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. He says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So as I said, John's main point here in this section is that someone who lives a lifestyle of habitual sin, they're not saved. That's evidence that they haven't been saved, even if they claim to be a Christian. The the sinful lifestyle is evidence that they don't know God, that they're not saved, they're not born again, they're not a true Christian. And John argues this point by focusing on two great purposes for why Jesus came in the first place. The first is, Jesus came to take away our sins. And the second is, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. You see that in verse uh, 5 and in verse uh, 8. So the first one there is in verse 5. It says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, that phrase, he appeared, refers to Jesus' first coming when he was incarnate, when he was conceived in the Virgin Mary's womb, was born, who lived his life. Talking about when he appeared uh, to, take, to, uh, to do his, his work of salvation for us. And it says, he says here that Jesus came to take away our sins. Uh, that's one of the main purposes for Jesus' coming, was to take away our sins. In fact, you recall that when John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus when he was preaching, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's John 1.29. So that's how John announced him, and that's how uh, John here, uh, the Apostle John, characterizes uh, Jesus' first coming. He came to take away our sins. And that's the basic message of Christianity. Jesus came into the world to take our sins away. And he even says in verse 5 in the beginning, he says, you know that he appeared to take our sins away. It's just, it's basic stuff to Christians. This is just Christianity 101. He died on the cross to take away our sin. That word for uh, take away means to lift up and, and carry away. So it's just Jesus took our sins upon himself and he carried them away. They're not on us anymore. They've been taken away. They've been put on the back of Jesus and he paid our sin debt in our place. Colossians 2.14 has that same idea. It says that Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's saying our sin debt was on us, but it was canceled by Jesus because he paid the debt for us on the cross in our place. And that phrase where it says he's taken uh, that debt, that decree against us because of our sin, he's taken it out of the way. It's the same word that John uses here. He's taken our sins away. 
So our sins have been taken from us and nailed to the cross. The debt's canceled. The sins are gone. We're cleansed in the blood of Jesus. That's the the summary that John gives us here in 1 John of what Jesus came to do, to take away our sins. Like he says, you know that, we know that. We know that Jesus came to take away our sins. But what John emphasizes at the end of the verse is one of the things that makes Jesus qualified to take away our sins, which is this. It says, and in him there is no sin. See, Jesus was able to take our sin upon himself because he himself had no sin debt to bear himself. He's perfect. He's sinless. He had to be that lamb without blemish who would be an acceptable sacrifice uh, to God to take away our sins. And the scripture testifies to Jesus' sinlessness repeatedly uh, for this reason. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for example, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Hebrews 4.15, it says that Jesus was tempted in all ways that we are yet without sin. Emphasizes it there. And later, it's, it's very strongly emphasized in Hebrews chapter 7, 25 to 27. Hear this. This is really important. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now hear this part. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, referring to Jesus. Why was it fitting? Such a high priest who's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, the Old Testament high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So contrasting Jesus with the Old Testament high priest, he's perfect, he's sinless, and his sacrifice wasn't for his own sins like Aaron the high priest was, it was just for the sins of the people. Jesus is holy, innocent, and undefiled and separated from sinners, and that qualifies him to be our high priest who who takes away our sin for us by his sacrifice. He offers his sacrifice only for our sins and not for his own because he has none himself. And John has already emphasized this as well in 1 John 2.29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. That's the main point of this text here in 1 John 3 as well. He says Jesus is righteous. 1 John 3, 3, just a a verse before. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Referring to Jesus, he is pure. And now he just says Jesus has no sin. So it's just as plain as can be. He's righteous, pure, and sinless. That's who Jesus is. And that qualifies him to take away our sins. Now, why is John here emphasizing the sinlessness of, of Jesus. It's very important for his point here. What he's trying to show us here, well, let's just look. He's going to draw the application here in verse 6 of why he's focusing on Jesus' sinlessness. He basically tells us in verse 6 where he says this, No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, just an aside, a side note real quick, just to get this out of the way. I have to say, before getting into this, this verse, when he says that whoever abides in him, no one who abides in him sins, he's not saying that Christians never sin. I'm sure you know that, but of course there are people who will argue that, uh, that being a Christian means you're sinlessness, sinless in this life. 
Um, But that's certainly not what he's talking about in this section. He's talking about that habitual lifestyle of sin where your life is characterized by it. It certainly cannot mean that a Christian never sins because John has already said in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, present tense, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John's not contradicting himself from chapter 1 to chapter 3. He's talking about someone who has a habitual lifestyle of sin. They're the ones, uh, no, no one who has that habitual lifestyle of sin can abide in him. So that being said, why is John bringing up the sinlessness of Jesus? He's saying this, Jesus was sinless, since Jesus was sinless, which qualified him to save us. No one who abides in that sinless savior is going to live a lawless and lawless rebellion against him. It's being, being abiding in Jesus means you're saved. You have union with Christ. You are in him. And uh, he's not going to produce in you something that's contrary to him. Uh, lawlessness. Now, he is, he's sinless, so he's going to produce righteousness in you because you are abiding in him if you're truly saved. You know, Jesus himself used this language of abiding in him when he gives the analogy of the vine and the branches back in John 15. Listen to what Jesus said, John 15, 4 to 6. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So just follow the analogy for a second here. If the branch is attached to the vine, that branch is going to bear whatever fruit uh, the vine is. Okay, whatever type of vine it is, the branch is going to bear the fruits of the vine that it's attached to. If the person who's the branch in the analogy is attached to Jesus, the vine, then that person is going to bear fruit that Jesus produces. Okay, the fruit that Jesus produces comes from his very character and his fruits of righteousness. If you're attached to the sinless savior, if you're abiding in him, the fruit that he bears in you is not going to be lawlessness, a lifestyle of sin, but it's rather going to be a lifestyle of righteousness consistent with who he is, who he is, his own character, his righteous character. Now, on the other hand, Jesus says that the person who does not abide in Christ is like a branch that's not attached to the vine. And if a branch is not attached to the vine, it will not bear fruit, period. It's going to dry up, it's going to be thrown on the ground, dry up, and taken and used for firewood. Okay, that's all it's good for. Unless you're attached to the vine, you will not bear fruit. And you know that a stick on the ground is not going to bear fruit. Okay, so those who are abiding in Christ, however, are going to bear fruit. And the fruit that Jesus bears is the fruit of righteousness. And that's exactly why, again, John said in 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Because knowing Jesus just results in keeping his commandments because if you know him, you abide in him, and it's just that's how Jesus works. He bears fruit in his people that's consistent with who he is. So only those who are true believers in Christ are going to bear that fruit of righteous living. So it's obvious then that someone who claims to abide in Christ and yet lives uh, habitually in a sinful lifestyle is not actually saved. 
You know, one commentator, Danny Aiken, said this, and this is where I got the title of the sermon. He says, a life of living in sin and living in the Savior is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. It's spiritually absurd. A life of living in sin and living in the Savior, it just, it can't be at the same time. You can't abide in Christ and be living in lawlessness at the same time. So when John says here, no one who abides in him sins, he means what he's already been saying in the book, that somebody who lives a lifestyle of sin, their life's controlled by sin, they're ruled by sin, it's, it's characterized by sin. Someone who, whose life is not free from sin's tyranny, who continues in that lawless lifestyle, has a disregard for God's commands, there's no way that they know Jesus. So if, if someone continues in that lifestyle and yet claims to know Jesus as Savior, he's saying they're wrong. There's, there's no way, he says, looking at verse 6, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. You cannot continue in sin and have met the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying there is no one can, have, no one can continue in that lifestyle of sin and have seen Jesus with the eyes of faith as he's presented in the gospel. No one could have their eyes spiritually opened to know Jesus and yet continue in that lifestyle of sin. No one who knows him continues in that because he will bear the fruit of righteousness in them. He says that in the beginning of verse 6. Notice he says, no one who abides in him is going to continue in sin. There's, there's no exceptions to it. This is how it always is. That when, when Jesus saves someone and he makes them abide in him, he's going to bear fruit that's consistent with his character, that fruit of righteousness. He will bear that. So true Christians will bear the fruit of righteousness, period. And it's only non-Christians who will fail to bear the fruit of righteousness. So no one who know, truly knows Jesus continues in that lifestyle of habitual lawlessness. It just doesn't make sense. It's spiritually absurd to think that those two things could hold together at the same time. Now, John takes this point, and he's just building on it. He's just layering this thing. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Now, as usual, we've seen this plenty of times, he addresses the people as little children. That's his term of love, his term of endearment for them. In this case, his term of concern for his people. He's saying, listen, listen, my little children. This is so important and I care about you. You have to understand this. His command to them, interestingly enough, is little children, make sure no one deceives you. About what? Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. <laughs> he tells us, hey, don't be deceived. It's a command. It's an imperative. Don't be deceived. And that might seem a little bit odd um, because usually when somebody's deceived, they don't know that they're being deceived. However, in this case, he's saying don't be deceived and you can know whether or not somebody's trying to deceive you. He's saying the reason that he can command us not to be deceived is because we can know the truth about this issue. Anything that contradicts the truth is a lie. So don't be deceived by a false teaching that contradicts the truth here. And the truth is this. If a, it, it's how a person lives that's going to show if he's saved or not. It's how a person lives that will be the proof. 
If you practice righteousness, then those works prove that you've been given that new heart that desires righteousness. He says, he says the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteousness. Yes, just as he is righteous. It is not those who say that they are righteous who prove themselves to be born again. It's those who practice righteousness who prove themselves to be born again. They've been given righteous hearts by the power of God. Uh, Calvin, again, he said this. He said, For many would gladly persuade themselves that they have this righteousness buried in their hearts, while iniquity evidently occupies their feet and hands and tongue and eyes. It's a great, great quote. What John is saying is that. He's saying, who practices righteousness. That's the one who's really saved, not the one who just claims it. The heart that a true believer has been given by God is a heart for righteousness. Just as Jesus has a heart for righteousness. Now the difference between us and Jesus, of course, is that we still sin, even as Christians. But sin is not the ruling characteristic of our lives anymore. The reason we still sin is because we still have that old, dying sin nature attached to our new nature in Christ. We are already told in 1 John 3, verse 2, that when, when Christ comes back, that will be done with. We will be like Jesus in perfection. But for now, uh, we still have a sin nature attached to us. Now, our new nature in Christ that we receive when we're born again, that lasts forever. Our old nature will be done away with when, when Christ returns. It will be done away with completely. We will no longer have to deal with our sin. So the one whose lifestyle is characterized by righteousness is the one who's been given that new righteous heart by God, by the Holy Spirit, when he's born again. In other words, he's saying practicing righteousness proves you've been born again. Now, John takes this point a step further again and argues another reason for why a true believer is not going to continue in sin. The first is that Jesus is sinless and he abides in Jesus, so Jesus is going to bear fruit of righteousness. The second is that uh, no one abiding, the second is this, that the fruit that the righteous Jesus produces in his people is going to be righteousness. But secondly, he argues this in verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So we had the first purpose that Jesus came to take away sins and he was sinless. And now we're told that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So we're told again, plainly, if someone practices sin, not only do they not abide in Christ, but he says they're of the devil. And he lays that out for us rather plainly. The devil or Satan is, of course, the great enemy of Christ and of his people. And it says that Christ came to destroy Satan's works. And that raises the question, though, what are Satan's works, right? They're the same things as what he said in verse 5. Satan's works are works of sin. Just like Jesus came to take away sins, he came to destroy the works of the devil, which is also sins. Jesus himself taught this about Satan and about salvation in John chapter 8. He says in John eight thirty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. But then he says later on in verse 36, so if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. In other words, that you're a slave to sin by nature. But Jesus, when he saves you, breaks your shackles to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. And later on in the same dialogue that Jesus is having, he brings in Satan and the relevance of him to this whole issue how being enslaved to sin uh, goes together with, G- with uh, Satan being our slave master and our natural father. Jesus said, 
to unbelievers in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So what he's saying is by nature, you're not God's children. By nature, you're Satan's children. And your will by nature is to please your father, Satan. And what's Satan's will? It's that you'd live in lawlessness and rebellion against God. So what we're told here in John, 1 John is that Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. You know, Jesus has, has crushed the serpent's head. He has freed us from being the children of, slavery, of, of Satan and, and slavery to sin. He has not only done that, but he secured our place in the father's family via adoption. No longer when you're saved do you follow the ways of Satan because you're not in Satan's family anymore. Satan, who has been a, he's been a sinner from the beginning. We now practice righteousness because we're born again. And we resemble no longer our natural father, Satan, but we resemble our new father, God the Father, who has made us born again. Now, it's at this point where, where John takes all, this, all, this, uh, all these points about sin and, and salvation and really sums it up and ties it up here in verses 9 and 10, bringing together the question of which family do you belong to? Look at verses 9 and 10. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born, because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, so John just, again, just wants to repeat himself to make himself absolutely clear so you cannot miss this. If you're living a life of habitual sin, a life that's characterized by disregard for the law of God, he's saying then you're not born again. You're not born of God. Notice that phrase. No one who is born of God practices sin. Period. There's no exceptions yet again. You can't explain it away. Those who are born again are going to bear the fruit of righteousness. It always happens every time. Why? It says because God's seed abides in him. Now, what's that mean? What's the seed of God referred to? It refers to that new nature that God gives you when he makes you born again. That new heart with new desires. In a sense, what's being said here is that God has birthed in you a new nature. He's given you that new heart so that you're a new person. And you're, you're, you're a person now who has a heart for righteousness. Think about how God describes it in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. He gives you a desire to obey his commandments because he's taken out your old dead heart and, and given you a new one. He's made you a new person. You were born once, but God has made you born again. In your first birth, you were born in sin, but in your second, you were born in righteousness. You're, you're a new person. And, when God, and because God has given this new righteous nature to you, you cannot continue to live in sin. It's not possible. You cannot live in sin because you've been born in God, the text, the born of God, the text says. And when God makes you born again, he, he just produces righteousness in you. That's what he does. You're his child and you will resemble him. You will resemble your father in heaven. 
God will make his people godly in their character through the new birth, through being born again, through regeneration. And that's, just, that's the fact of it that John's laying out for us. No one born of God continues in their life of sin. Now, to make that contrast, again, as plain as John can possibly make it, he's saying you're either in two families. Let's just, let's just break it down. It boils down to this. You're either in one of two families, God's family or Satan's. If you look at verse 10 again, by this the children of God and the children of, and the de- children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Notice what he says there. You need to see that. He says, which family you are in, God's or Satan's, it's obvious which one you're in. Because the question all comes down to this. Do you practice righteousness or do you practice sin? What is, what is the characterizing thing in your life? Is your life characterized by obedience to God and a desire to please him? Or is it characterized by disregard for God's law and rebellion against him? Those things aren't close. They're very different. If you do not practice righteousness, he says it's obvious that you're not born again. And you're still a child of Satan, following after him and doing your father's desires. That is Satan's desires. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, he says. Because when God saves someone, they will practice righteousness. I mean, is this clear enough? I don't know if you notice how much John wants us to understand this pretty simple point. He's just laboring it over and over again. We have to get it through our heads. He says, don't be deceived. If you claim to know God, you claim to be a Christian, you claim to love Jesus, but then on the, at the same time, you don't practice righteousness. He's saying, and that claim is bogus. It's a phony claim. It doesn't, they don't mix together. Unrighteous living as your characterizing lifestyle doesn't mix with knowing Jesus. John says that if you, can, if you continue in sin, that proves you've never met Jesus. You've never seen him or known him, verse 6 says. So if you're truly saved, you've been born again. And if you're born again, then God's given you that new righteous nature, a new heart that desires to keep his commands. And when you are born again, your life's just going to be flipped totally upside down from what you were before. I mean, think about the imagery of being born again. God saves you. You're starting a new life now. You're a new person. Who you used to be is dead, and the new creature has begun to live. It's like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So as, as we conclude this and, and tie this all together, he's saying, John, John's saying, it's obvious that you're still a child of Satan and not of God if you don't practice righteousness. But he also says here at the end of verse 10, also if you don't love your brother as well. Now, what John's doing there is he's transi- transitioning to the next section, which we'll cover next time. It's on the love of the brothers. And really, righteousness and love for the brothers, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And true believers are going to have both. But we'll save the discussion for the love of the brethren for the next passage. But for now, we conclude this section and we just, we're going to laser focus on the main point that John has given to us. Those who are born again will practice righteousness. Their life is going to be characterized by the submitting to God's law. And again, on the other hand, those who are not born again are going to practice sin. Their life will be characterized by disregard for God's law. And, and the difference between the two groups 
is just astronomical. I mean, born-again people, they're children of God. And those who are not born again, they're children of Satan. I mean, they're in totally different families. They're living in different worlds. They have, they have different fathers. And, and the reality is they end up in two very different places as well. And Jesus said in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, unless you're born again, you're not going to heaven. You're not saved unless you're born again. Rather, along with Satan and all his demons, you will go to hell along with him, with your father Satan. So whether or not you're born again is not a trifling thing. It's, it makes all the difference in the world. It's the most important thing in your life. And you need to know the difference then. Knowing the difference between these two groups of people, he's saying it's obvious and you need to know the difference because how, how Satan's children and God's children think and speak and act, it, it, it's just so obviously different and opposed to one another. It makes clear who their father actually is. If you live in righteousness, you're showing that you have God as your father. And if you live in sin, you show that you have Satan as your father. So the question is, the question you need to know for yourself is, which family do you belong to? The family of God or the family of Satan? Now, again, the point of this is to know whether or not you are saved. So if you know that God has changed you and he's given you a righteous heart with righteous desires, and although you still sin, it's not the characterizing thing in your life anymore, he's saying you know that you are in Christ then. On the other hand, if you claim to be a Christian, but yet at the same time are living with disregard to the law of God, you don't care about that, that you are living in sin, which is the same thing as lawlessness, disregarding God, then he's saying you're not saved, you're not born again, and you're still in your shackles to sin, you still have Satan as your, as your father. So if you recognize that you're not born again because you're not one who regards the, love of, the law of God and his commandments, then the call to you is, is simply this. You need to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. It, it's simple. T- turn away from your sins that you love. And instead, hate them. Repent of your sins. Turn to Jesus, who the text says, he came to, way, came to take away his people's sins. And, and we're told in Scripture, if you repent of your sins, and if you trust in Jesus to take your guilt away, not trusting in yourself, not trusting in your works, or anything else, then you will be saved if you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. And when you truly do trust in Jesus, you'll know because God will work this evidence in you. He'll, get, he'll, he'll have given you that new heart that produces righteousness in your life because he always does that for everybody that he saves. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this text of scripture. You've made it just so clear Um, on how we can know whether or not we are saved. I pray that you'll make it so clear to everyone who who hears this, whether they are of your family or of Satan's family, that you will show us all clearly whether or not that you have made us born again. I pray that you'll bear the fruit in us that so proves us to be your disciples. And I pray for anyone who recognizes that you have not done that in their life and that they have not repented of their sins and they're still living in their sin. I pray that you would grant them repentance, that you would do your mighty saving work so that they would turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus who came to take away our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. We thank you for that, your great salvation and the work that you've done, not only forgiving us of all our sins, but also breaking the power of sin in our lives as well. 
So we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.